Blog Talk Radio. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting a Teenager Learning the Lingo. GOAT, G O A T, acronym, stands for Greatest of All Time, as in Spaghetti Sandwiches for Dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Yo, that's him right up there. Stop the call right here. Gang violence. Gunshots. On Fifth and Vine. Police. Jail. A family. <laughs> gonna be okay. A brother alone. Hey, little man, come here. What you got on your back? A sister afraid. <laughs> a father worried. Son, are you okay? A child without. <laughs> a mother counting the days till her boy is home. I just hope my baby's safe. These are the sounds of gang violence. From the day you're sentenced, your family starts facing the true hard time with you. Something to think about before you commit a gun crime. Gun crimes hit home. This message brought to you by Project Safe Neighborhoods and the Ad Council. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter, at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook. Saturday mornings with Joy Keys. We also have a group on Facebook. Um, I would try to join that because it seems like people are getting the announcements faster there. And you can check me out on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. And you can listen to the show on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. If you miss the beginning of a show, all the shows are archived, so don't worry. You can you know, go back and listen on any of those platforms. Today, I'm going to be speaking about guns. I know, right? You're like, what? Joy, guns? Yes, people have guns, and people use them safely, and people have guns, and they use them for bad things, as we just heard on the PSA there. Uh, But I have two people are going to be coming in. Uh, Paul Smith, he's the president of the National African American Gun Association, and uh, he's going to be calling. And then hopefully also Dr. Joseph B. Richardson, Jr., um, he is uh, going to be calling in. I, I found him because I was like, wow, you know, it's hard to find a black person doing research on guns. But he's the Joel and Kim Seller Professor of African-American Studies and Medical Anthropology at the University of Maryland. I think one of them is on the line now. Let's see. Good morning. You, your last 5959? Five, five, Good morning. This is Dr. Is this Richardson. Paul Smith or Dr. Richardson? Thank you for calling Dr. in, Dr. Richardson. Dr. Richardson. <laughs> How you doing? I'm good. Wow. You don't know. I was looking for you. You was like a needle in a haystack. <laughs> I didn't know it was you, but I just knew. I was like, all these people doing research on guns, and they're white. I, 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 not that I don't want to talk to them, that's, but I kind of want to have. That's the problem. Person of that's color. part of the problem. <laughs> Is that part of the problem? Okay. Definitely, you know, without me, a doubt. Let me tell them a little bit about some of your research. Um, your, your research is focusing on the causes and collateral consequences of gun violence and community trauma, structural interpersonal mm-hmm. violence, 
incarceration and community supervision as social determinants of health for black men, violence prevention and intervention programming and policies, parenting strategies for low-income black boys. So you got a lot going on here. Let me just ask you, how did you get interested in researching gun violence and prevention? Well, well, first, I want to thank you for inviting me on the show and, uh, and, and for finding me. Um, so I'm a native of Philadelphia, and for those of yes. you who, who uh, <laughs> know Philly, I'm born and raised, and uh, grew up during, um, in adolescence, during, uh, you know, the height of the crack era, like many people have in, in cities across America, and just witnessed the devastation of um, crack to my community, communities throughout Philadelphia, and um, and the impact that gun violence had as a result of that in my community, as well as mass incarceration. So I know, you know, plenty of people who have been shot and um, young men in my community have died as a result of gun violence. And uh, even the collateral effects of gun violence and trauma on my own life. And and I always say that even though I wasn't involved in the high-risk lifestyle, the effects of gun violence and knowing people who were injured, knowing people that have died living in a city that was affected by gun violence, um, also affected my own uh, perceptions of my life expectancy, trauma, Mm -hmm. hypervigilance, all of those things that accompany um, symptoms of traumatic stress. So, you know, that's the way I got interested alone, in it. This year alone, there are like more than 300 people have been killed by guns in Philadelphia. And um, just the other day, a young woman who was 15 uh, was on the playground. Right. Totally stereotypical story on the playground, playing basketball, and she got shot. She had nothing to do supposedly with that interaction or why they were shooting. So she was collateral right. damage. Um, I was supposed to have Paul Smith on here because I did want to have his viewpoint because he has an organization helping African-Americans, you know, deal with guns in a responsible way. Is there in your mind a responsible way to own a gun? I mean, there is. And, and just because, and I, I don't want to make this clear, just because I'm a gun violence researcher, and I'm black and male, um, doesn't mean that I'm anti-gun. And, mm-hmm. in fact, you know, I'm a, I own a gun. So mm-hmm. um, I do believe in responsible gun ownership. Um, I've had um, Stephen Yorkman, who was the former president of the Maryland chapter of the National African American Gun Association, on my podcast, Working Class Intellectuals. And so and he was on my podcast maybe three years ago, three or four years ago. So um, it's great to see that NAGA is is growing across the country and the chapters are growing, and I support what they're doing. Now, for me, you know, I'm, I'm a woman, and I was a single parent for, for um, the whole entirety of my daughter's life. I was a single parent. So I remember when she was younger, I was thinking about getting her a gun, because for my safety, mm-hmm. that's, I was just really for, for my safety. And I, her mm-hmm. godfather was like freaking out. Like, what do you mean? You're going to have a gun in the house. Uh, you know, the kids find it. Something's going to happen to them. And I said, well, what if somebody breaks into my house and something happens? Well, how am I going to protect myself? You know what I mean? 
And um, right. so, so there was a debate. Some of my friends were, you know, for it, and and others weren't. Um, I was afraid to tell my family because I know they weren't for it. Like, oh my God, you're gonna have a gun in the house. But um, you know, there's always this argument of, I want my gun to protect myself, and also I'm going hunting. Nobody's killing anybody around here. What do mm-hmm. we say to those people who are have that comfortable mindset of, well? You're going to take my gun away because those black people over there are killing each other? So what? Right. So, I mean, I I think it's a a much more complex and complicated history in terms of gun ownership among black Americans. And what we have seen during COVID is a rise in, uh, in, in black gun ownership, particularly among black women. But we also know, like, statistically, um, the likelihood of being injured increases when you do own a gun. And so, and, and, mm. and part of that is in, it can be tied to that people don't know how to responsibly handle a gun. Um, they don't know how to, to load a gun, um, particularly guns that may not have safety features like, like uh, manufacturers like a Glock, but, uh, but also not knowing how to, how to shoot a gun. And so, I think those things need to, um, among African-American gun owners, we should be involved in, in making sure that we're trained in how to handle a gun and how to, how to shoot responsibly. But also the history of, of firearm ownership for African-Americans has basically been a history of stripping us of our constitutional rights to own a gun. And so that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to advocate for gun ownership. And that, that has started in the beginning of, um, you know, slave patrols up until where we are today of, of stripping black people uh, from owning guns. And even in terms, and I wish that Paul was on this, but I know in my conversations with Stephen Yorkman, um, there's been tepid support from the NRA for um, the National African-American Gun uh, Gun Association. So you're not seeing the same kind of mainstream support for gun ownership for African-American gun uh, associations as you're seeing for white Americans. And, I mean, we can look no further than the the incident, um, the unfortunate incident with Philando Castile in Minnesota, who actually legally Mm -hmm. owned a gun and had mentioned it to the officer that he, he had a, he had a license for a gun and was still killed. Yeah, he was so, trying I mean, to do, been, trying to do the right a, thing. Right, right. So now, do you it's think been a narrative that, um, for us across the country. Now, at what age do you think somebody should own a gun? At what age should somebody learn about a gun? Uh, I'm not going to necessarily say, you know, because we get into a lot of issues around developmental, uh, developmental science of when someone should own a gun. Um, so I don't necessarily want to say when that should be, but you know if we're going to we're going to be fair across the board in terms of of development. And I would say this in in the context of criminal justice system as well that we know that the brain doesn't fully develop until someone is 25 years old mm-hmm. and they're not able to make mm-hmm. really um, clear decisions. So. If we just use the developmental science, then I would say 25, right? You shouldn't be yeah, yeah. 25 years old. If we base it, and I'm, to be fair across the board in terms of the way that we treat um, developmental science in this country. So, 
you know, I, I think that's up for debate, but I, I definitely believe that there should be mandatory requirements in terms of um, people going to a range, learning how to responsibly own a gun and not just, you know, getting guns in the hands of people and, and not understanding that they have, you know, a tool that can be used to ultimately when you're using a gun in a, in a precarious situation, you know, you're using it defensively to put someone down. And so, you know, this is life or death situation. It's a tool that can, that can lead to, to, to the death or um, serious disability of the person who is injured and also have implications for the criminal justice system. And so there now, should, should have, be mandatory requirements for that. Now, you know, different countries deal with what is, um, who can get a gun, and here the question I want to ask, should felons be able to get a gun? They served their time. They did what, whatever they did, and they served their time. Should they be able to get a gun? We're fighting for the right to vote. Think felon, I, think that, I definitely think that felons, someone convicted of a, of a nonviolent crime, should, should mm-hmm. have the same rights and accessibility to a gun as anyone else. But I, there, there should be some clear distinctions and conditions for for a person who was engaged in, let's say, for example, an attempted murder or an assault or a homicide, right? Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily think that we should um, immediately grant that person the ability to access a gun, but uh, but that's also up for debate, too. Maybe there should be some timelines in terms of the conditions um, and certain restrictions that they may have in order to, to obtain a firearm. But for individuals who, you know, have have not been convicted of a violent felony, serious violent felony, they should have had the same rights and accessibility to a gun as anyone else. In your research, you know, this issue of violence prevention, do young people in your research, have you found, why do they not understand or do they understand that this gun could kill someone? and kill them and kill their their um, ability to do things if they get caught. So I shoot A, I'm B, I'm in jail for the rest of my life, A is gone, so we're both gone. Right. But also you have to look at the context of why young people have guns. And we, we unfortunately, we're in, an, we're in an era right now where you have, you know, police brutality, the number of homicides and unarmed black men that are being killed by the police, so there's a lack of trust in the police. Um, the number of guns that were purchased during COVID, which millions of guns were purchased during um, this period of COVID, where many of them have been able to make it to the streets. And then if you look at the homicide closure rate in many cities where it may hover, you know, 20 to 30%, you know, there are, there are warranted reasons why a young person may believe that they need a firearm, right? They don't feel safe, and they're also dealing with a great deal of trauma that, that within living in neighborhoods that are affected by other social determinants of health, like concentrated poverty. So I don't fault young people for having a gun, and, I, and, and to be quite honest with you, if I were a 16-, 17-year-old and today in 2021, I may own a gun as well if I had accessibility to, to one. So what we really need to get at are why, kid, why are kids carrying guns? What are the reasons why they're carrying guns? And we need to address those underlying causes 
of why they're carrying a gun before we just jump to, well, let's just lock them up, right? Because mm-hmm. where I just recently, um, you know, I sit on a violence fatality review committee for the district, and one of the recommendations we recently made is, that, you know, if you catch a young person, and, and I, I think there's already playing out in, in D.C. anyway, but if you if a young person is caught with a firearm and this is their first time, then they should be placed uh, in wraparound services, right? You shouldn't directly send this person to be on probation, saddling them with a, with a, with a felony for the rest of their lives because yeah. they were carrying a gun, not offensively, but defensively, right? Because they live in communities that are unsafe, right? So how do we manage to address those young people who are out there and they're carrying firearms, not because they have a malicious intent, if they want to harm or kill someone, but they just li- they live in communities where they don't feel safe, and then the adults that are are in those communities aren't really doing a great job of protecting them. So everyone has to take ownership for that problem. I think that that um, there's a fear issue when African Americans own, as you spoke about it a little bit earlier, owning guns. Um, I saw a video online where they had. Um, a white man walking down the street with a rifle. It was an open carry state, he, so he had every right to have the, the rifle. He was walking, mm-hmm. no problem. They were videotaping him. Then they got a black guy, same street, walking down the street, and within 15 minutes or something or so of, of them filming as he was walking, there were like two or three Jeep, uh, police jeeps made him get on the ground, would not let him mm-hmm. explain. Uh, mm-hmm. And they just kept asking him, what are you doing with the gun? What are you do? like?" And it was like, this is the same exact street this white man walked down and was able to carry a gun, no problem, no cops, nothing. Exactly. And I got three, three cars on me asking me, and they took the gun from him. Um, and it was just... So how can we as African-Americans, if we do want to protect ourselves and be responsible and have a gun, how then can we deal with the external world? We could have it in our house, but say you're in an open carry state and you want to have your gun and you want to feel safe. Maybe you feel strong with this gun on your, on your hip. What steps mm-hmm. can we take to uh, deal with police or, or different systems when we encounter them that are going to, be afraid of us. I don't know whether though there are, there are steps that we can take in terms of how the police will respond to us because we, we can't control that narrative. But the steps that we can take are embracing uh, African-Americans purchasing guns legally and responsible gun ownership and following the rules of, of, of the law. And, and in that mm-hmm. situation, that black man was following the rules of the law. It was clear he had he was exercising his right, uh, Second Amendment rights to open carry. As similarly to the to the white person that was allowed to just walk um, through that that context unfettered, and so that becomes a pro- problem. And the reason why from now at the outset of this conversation, I said I endorsed African Americans gun ownership as well as groups like uh, the National African-American Gun Association that support 
um, legal carrying of firearms in the same way that you have white Americans do. But it's been a history of this country to strip African Americans of their Second Amendment rights. And that's a, that's a clear example of it. We've, we've seen it historically with the Black Panther Party and open carry in California, where as soon as the Black Panther Party exercised their Second Amendment rights to open carry with long guns, then suddenly it became against the law, right? Then the policies of gun ownership and how you want to carry a gun changed. And so that's the yeah. narrative of this country, right? And we have, we have to deal with that. But the only way that we can continue to make normalize it is for African Americans to be able to exercise their Second Amendment rights. Do you have a favorite gun, a favorite type of gun, and why? I, I don't, you know. And even though I own a gun, as I, I'm, although I own a gun for defensive purposes and I keep my gun at home, which I think, you know, that's my own personal opinion. I think people should have guns, but I don't believe in carrying a gun in public. You know, I think a gun is is, is should be used for home defense, but. You know, I don't have a I don't have a specific kind of gun that you know I advocate for a person to carry. I'm not. That would be a question that I think would be uh, more in in the, the lane for someone that is uh, an advocate for gun ownership and is an enthusiast. So I want to say shout out to Mark Chopper in D.C., uh, who's another brother who advocates for legalization of guns and is is real sharp in teaching. Um, uh, black Americans about gun ownership and what types of guns and, and why one is more effective than the other. So I would leave that to those experts. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I would say that for me, it's not really about, you know, I've been to the range several times in, in, um, in terms of shooting a gun, but Mm-hmm. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't have, I don't have a gun with the intentions, and never bought with one with the intentions that I ever wanted to really use it. Actually, use so, it, yeah, yeah, right. And it would hope that you I don't. You have a movie. Um, I want to ask you about. You have a digital storytelling uh, project, Life After the Gunshot. Can you tell the audience about that? Sure. So, um, my colleague and I, Chay Bullock, we. Uh, I co-founded a, a hospital violence intervention program in 2017 and served as the co-director at the University of Maryland Prince George's Hospital Center. And uh, the program, uh, the primary purpose of the program is to reduce trauma recidivism among people who have been treated for a violent injury. And so nationally, the trauma recidivism rate is, extends anywhere between um, 5 and 60% meaning if I use 60% as a number, six out of every 10 people that come into a hospital for a violent injury, this is not their first time being hospitalized for a gunshot wound or stab. This could be their second, Mm. third, fourth, sometimes their fifth time. And so our Mm. um, purpose is to reduce the rate of trauma recidivism to prevent primarily young people from coming back to the hospital for a violent injury or ending up um, the, the victim of a, of a fatal shooting or stabbing. And so um, I directed that program for two years and learned a great deal about the lives of young black men who have survived a, uh, a gunshot wound and decided that we wanted 
those young men to tell their stories about how they were injured, the the symptoms of traumatic stress that they experienced um, that were a result of their injury, but also the symptoms of traumatic stress that were not even related to their injury, but they had been experienced over the course of their lives. And then ultimately the intersection of the, the healthcare and criminal justice systems and the ways that young men who have a history of criminal justice involvement and have a felony, how that impacts their lives in terms of their ability to get a job, housing, um, student loans, and the mm-hmm. ways that felony disenfranchisement pushes them back into second-class citizenship, which ultimately may lead them to engage in a, a high-risk lifestyle that would result in being injured again. And then we close out with um, with the solutions to reducing gun violence, but the solutions are solutions proposed by the young men, not by myself or um, Che Bullock, who is the, the executive, um, co-executive producer with me and a violence intervention specialist who um, was, uh, I would say, the glue of the program mm-hmm. because the he worked project directly together. with <laughs> many of the young. He worked. He worked directly with many of the young men because he had been injured himself. So, um, okay. so we we highlight the narratives of those young men and as well as uh, all the people who work in the, that ecosystem of gun violence, trauma surgeons, violence interrupters, uh, defense attorneys, judges, therapists. Uh, and the caregivers, so the girlfriends and the, and the mothers of the young men who are taking care of them as well, who also suffer from secondary and vicarious trauma as a result of, you know, um, taking care of a young person who has been injured. Yeah, people, I think, forget about there are these people belong to families, people belong to communities, people um, have friends, you know, in school or in the neighborhood, and so if one person gets hit, they're hurt, but then also if they have friends, their friends are maybe angry or sad, then their family, if the family loses it. I, I worked with an organization called Mothers in Charge, and it was uh, created to help women who had lost uh, children to, to gun violence, and um, mm-hmm. they have a, a nationwide organization, chapters all over the country, uh, because uh, they had, um, you know, we would have grief. I helped run a grief uh, session, and I remember when they asked me, I'd come into the office that day, and they were like, oh, we need you to run this session. I was like, ooh, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. So I hadn't even, (laughs) I hadn't gotten somebody shot. No, but, you know, I was like, today wasn't the day for me to be doing a grief session, you know? Right, right. um, Totally understand. But, but, you know, but it worked out, you know, and, um it worked out and in talking to them, some of them, their kids have been gone for years and years, but the grief is still there and it's reoccurring. So gun violence not only affects the individual. Also, I remember going to a um, grand round thing and, and, and there were doctors there and they were showing actual pictures of people shot, gunshot wounds mm-hmm. so that you could see this is what actually happened. Like in the movies, you don't really see. Like in the movies, it's like maybe some quick blood here and this, that, and the other. But you don't really see in, in real life. Um, what do you want to tell people, communities, families? How can they help the young men and women today in dealing with gun violence, 
the trauma, what can they do? You need to get involved and step outside of your comfort zone and get involved in the lives of these young people to provide a source of social capital and mentorship and and direction and love because that's really ultimately at the end of the day what has saved us as a community is the collective parenting of children, and we've gotten away from that. Um, Mm. And and that's what really needs to happen in our communities now is how can we – collectively engage in parenting kids, even though they may not biologically be our own children, but we're still responsible as we, we have been. And we we know the blueprint. Yeah. But, you know, society is society has drastically changed um, from, the, as, from even the time that I was coming up. You know, you have social media now, and with COVID, a lot of people are staying in the house and during, yeah. at least during 2020. And you have a conflict playing out on social media now, and I think many parents are kind of detached from the culture of the the culture that these young people are living in, right? Um, and in fact, you know, some parents may actually encourage their kids to just remain on the computer all day because then they don't need the parent. So we need to be more actively engaged in the lives of, of young people, and and more men and women taking um, a sincere commitment to to mentoring as many people as possible. And I, that's the only way that we're really going to get it done. And I totally agree with you because they want it. These young people want it. And, and my dealings with young people are help run, a facilitate um, a group for young teens, 13 to 18-year-old boys, and they want it and they need it. And they're not aware of how to deal with the traumas in their life. I mean, in the group I ran, the question was, how many people you know had gotten shot by a gun? How many people, you know, died by a gun? I mean, people's hands were just raising, 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 raising. So it's out right, there. It's, right. it's, it's, it's for real. And it's not a gun. It could be nice. It could just be fighting. It, it just Violence doesn't right. always include a gun. There's other right. things that... Um, create trauma for children. So every time right. somebody now, says, I, says that, yeah, go ahead. No, no, I was, I was just agreeing. I, you know, I, I use the the term structural violence all the time in my discussions that violence isn't necessarily just, you know, fist, stick, knife, gun. Violence is concentrated poverty. Violence is uh, food deserts or medical deserts within communities that lead to shorter life expectancies in a city, for example, you know, black men in D.C. live lives, you know, die 17 years earlier than white men in the District mm-hmm. of Columbia. If you look at the health disparities between a white person that lives in Wood, Willie's Park, the life expectancy for that person is 89.4 years. You travel 15 minutes across the city to St. Elizabeth, it's 68.4. Like that's not just the result of a fist, stick, and knife and gun. Those are those are characteristics of structural violence. Like the structure is violent. It has caused harm to people that's cut decades off of their lives, which is why, you know, white wa- black Washingtonians, you know, have a COVID, COVID death rate six times more than white Washingtonians. And then you have to look at the racial wealth gap. Why? 
why is there such a significant racial wealth gap where whites have 10 times more wealth than, than blacks? I mean, these are all issues that we should be focusing on, right, and not just why uh, a, a young person that lives in southeast D.C. has a gun. There's much bigger than that. And so mm-hmm, even if you definitely. look in terms of the racial wealth gap in D.C., you know, there's a recent study which found that the a white household has a net worth of $284,000 compared to a black household, which has $3,500. That's an 81 times di- uh, difference in, in the wealth between white households and black households. We need to talk well, about know, that. Well, you know, I mean, you know the issue is generational. We can't just think this right. moment in time. The issue is generational. And now, there, of course, there are poor white people. There are poor Asian people, Chinese people, there's poor Mexican people, there's poor Hawaiian people. There are poor people everywhere, no matter what their ethnicity. But uh, for African Americans in this society, they started without. And most of the white people were able to start with something. So generationally, this is something that, this is why these things have occurred and continue to occur. But I agree with you, if you're seeing a problem, be part of the solution, mainly. Don't sit up there and complain about those kids in the corner. Maybe you want to start right. a group. Um, I always tell people, the, you know, um, big brother, big sister, can you um, mentor a kid for a whole year every week? I mean, seriously, if you want to help the situation, that will help the situation. That, that person can then become an angel for another person because you impacted their lives. Uh, right. And, 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 and gained their trust and were there for them. So uh, it's a ripple effect. Thank you so much, Dr. Richardson, for coming on today. I'm sorry. I'm not sure what happened with Paul, but I'm sure he'll probably email me or something (laughs) something came up. But we had a great discussion, and I I appreciate your knowledge. And thank you so much for doing the research. Like I said, I was looking to look. I was like Yale and Harvard. (laughs) I was over in Berkeley. I was like, blah, 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 blah. And then I was like, oh, this is him. Okay, okay. (laughs) I appreciate you bringing me on. All right. The last thing I want to say is, last thing I want to say is, very last thing, is definitely we need to erase the stigma of mental health treatment and therapy for for black people. It's okay to go to a therapist. Yes. All right. And I just want to make sure that, you know, you have the opportunity to go to a therapist. You should take advantage of that. And we need far more clinicians in our communities, but we need people, we need, because we've been traumatized and we need to find some ways to address our own trauma. And it's all right if we go to, to, to seek out therapy. It's not a sign of weakness. No, it is not. And I talk about that all the time on my show. I recently did a show on bipolar disorder just last week with schizophrenia and talking about these issues because I want people to dispel myths and also know that there are, you know, researchers or psychiatrists and psychologists, therapists of color that they can go to, they may feel more comfortable speaking with. And let me put it this way. If you go to a therapist, say you say you don't have any problems, but you go to the therapist, let me just see what this is about. What did you do? Exactly. Lose? Maybe a, maybe a $20 copay. Exactly. You know, what, what exactly. did you do? So, exactly. Um, and just because you don't go to, if you go to one and you don't like that experience, it's similar to going to a doctor. You may not like the doctor you have, and people change their positions all the time. So yes. don't go in with the expectation that 
if it didn't work out with this therapist, that there's not another therapist out there that could work out for you, right? So I just want people to, to understand that. I don't think they realize that either. It's like I'm stuck with this person. And no, you have, right. you have a certain power. And same with medical community. I remember um, one of my friend's daughters, they went to the doctor. It was the first time she was going as an adult. And she left and realized, did you get blood work and everything? Oh, they said they didn't need that. Excuse me? This is the first time <laughs> you're going to see the doctor as an adult. They need a baseline. They need to know. Oh, exactly. and she said, um, I don't have to come back for two years. What? Yeah. No. Right. No, 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 no. So, yes, research, just like you would research the type of car you're going to buy, you know, the clothes you're going to wear, the type of job you're going to get, all these things. Same thing with your doctors, mental and physical uh, clinicians. Yes. Well, you have a great weekend. Be safe. Um, You too. You know what? I need your wife to bake me some stuff. Doesn't she bake? (laughs) She's a pastry chef, yes. Oh my God, gorgeous stuff! You guys check her out. What's tell 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 the audience um, her, to, her page uh, and everything. Marie, Marie Josephine Cakes again. Marie Josephine Cakes you can find on Instagram, um, and Twitter. But it's best of uh, you can also at her website as well. But if you're on Instagram, please follow her on Instagram, and she posts all of her um, all of her delights. And she's one of the top black pastry chefs in the U.S., and so you should definitely support her. Amazing stuff, artistic stuff, not just your regular, you know, yeah. I don't no. know, bunt cake or something like that. This no. is wild stuff, okay? So check her out. Yeah. Um, and, and my mouth was just warning, so I was like, okay, well, he got someone to bring some goodies or something. Send it to the P.O. box or something. <laughs> you know, FedEx overnight or something. I don't That's know. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Oh, my God. Shout out to Marie Josephine Cakes. All right. Thank you. Take it easy. All right. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. Uh, We just got off the phone with Dr. Joseph B. Richardson, Jr. He's the Joel and Kim Feller Professor of African-American Studies and Medical Anthropology at the University of Maryland. Um, We did – we're supposed to have Paul Smith from NAGA, um, National African-American Gun Association. Something must have come up. You know things happen in life. But uh, hopefully one day we'll get to talk about, uh, to him about his organization um, and his love for firearms. So um, stay tuned for that. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Thank you so much for your support. I hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke.